people should ask themselves, where was NASA before Elon Musk came along? Where was the electric car industry before he came along? I mean, he's revolutionized industries that we should be rooting for him to revolutionize. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Corey Bradford. Well, Corey, you had a milestone this weekend. Yeah, I turned 30 this past Friday. It was pretty cool. Your first, uh, I guess, birthday in New York City? Yeah, it was my first birthday in New York City. Other than the existential crisis, it was a pretty fun time. Went out, had some drinks. It was it was nice. Well, as somebody who's nearing the end of my 30s, you have nothing to worry about. I think 30 is like the best time of your life, or at least... I comparing it to my other decade so far. Everybody keeps telling me that, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Here's to a good decade for you. What do we have in the news? Uh, we got some interesting stuff coming up. Today, California Governor Newsom is playing political hardball with a new gun law that parallels Texas's abortion law. Historic deadly tornadoes raise questions about climate change and workers' rights. And Elon Musk, person of the year? Does he deserve that title? Robbie's going to give you his take on how to fix student loan debt. And I'll round out the show with some of the serious bad takes from last week's top stories. But first things first, some revelations about January 6th. Robbie, they had a committee in Congress about this, some hearings about this last night. And uh, we got some big, big revelations out of that. Yeah, as context, this is the January 6th commission. There was, you know, a whole backstory about how this commission was created and Mm -hmm. like how most Republicans didn't participate in it. Mm -hmm. But a few Republicans are, are on this committee, including Liz Cheney, who's been a big critic of President Trump's handling of the January 6th mm-hmm. incident. And the, the committee had been working with White House Chief of Staff or former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows mm-hmm. to cooperate with the committee. And for a while, he was cooperating. And as part of that, he turned over 10,000 plus pages of documents to the committee. And we're starting to learn what were in those documents, even though he stopped cooperating since yeah. we have access to that information. And last night, Liz Cheney read from those documents, and particularly she read some text messages that were sent from certain figures on the right the day of the January 6th, the riots. Uh, so let's see what Liz Cheney had to say. According to the records, multiple Fox News hosts knew the president needed to act immediately. They texted Mr. Meadows, and he has turned over those texts. Quote, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy, Laura Ingram wrote. Please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished, Brian Kilmeade texted. Quote, can he make a statement Ask people to leave the Capitol, Sean Hannity urged. As the violence continued, one of the president's sons texted Mr. Meadows, quote, he's got to condemn this shit ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough, Donald Trump Jr. texted. Meadows responded, quote, I'm pushing it hard. I agree. So, Corey, I think a big criticism early on of this committee was that it wasn't going to lead to new revelations. But this seems to be new information. Uh, Yeah, this is very new and very relevant information. You know, we here on The Lost Debate did a whole review of this Tucker Carlson documentary, The Patriot Purge, where they're floating this idea that the federal government or the FBI had something to do with making January 6th as bad as it was. And it's really weird that if Fox News is pushing that narrative, then why then on January 6th were Fox News hosts texting Meadows to say, hey, Trump, you need to stop this. That means that either A, they believe that Trump 
was complicit in January 6th, or they at least believe that B, he had the power to stop it. Right. And, and just to reiterate, you had uh, Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, Brian mm -hmm. Kilmeade. You know, these are prominent Fox News hosts who seemed really alarmed that day. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them since that day have had, as you described, you know, you have the, the documentary, but you have all sorts of other coverage that they've had that either pushes conspiracy theories about January 6th or dismisses the significance of it. Mm -hmm. But I'm with you. Like that day, it was very clear to them that this was a huge problem, both for Trump, for the right wing brand as a whole, and for our country. But They've gone into cover your ass mode. Yeah. And ever since then, it's been less, I guess, about patriotism and more about just defending their flank. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Laura Ingram, you know, she sent the text to Trump basically saying, you know, hey, this is ruining or she didn't send it to Trump. She sent it to Meadows basically saying this is ruining Trump's legacy. Right. No, I think this is Trump's legacy. I think January 6th is a huge part of his legacy because, I mean, again, it's something that he sparked and obviously it's something that he had the power to stop and didn't. Yeah, and it's curious to me that the legacy of Trump was the concern, right? What about yeah. our country about and democracy? our democratic, yeah. democratic about, institutions? Yeah. Yeah. But this also makes me think about, you know, there are a lot of these emerging figures on the left and a lot of people who are self-described populists who are using a lot of alternative media, whether it's YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, and Substacks, who've become these this new political celebrities and, uh, and intellectuals who spend a lot of time critiquing the left and they're coming from the left critiquing the left and they, they spend a lot of time critiquing MSNBC's bias yeah. New York Times bias mm -hmm. and in they had a field day as did we with uh, the Cuomo yeah. situation where CNN had such biased coverage of Governor Cuomo and really didn't know how to handle the conflict of interest with the Cuomo brothers mm -hmm. but one thing that's frustrating to me is a lot of these emerging figures on the left they pretend like Fox News doesn't exist mm -hmm. and so what I would ask of them is you can criticize CNN and MSNBC for bias because those biases exist. We criticize them yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely. But, but also, where's the coverage of this, right? Yeah. Like both within these emerging figures on the left, they pretend like these incidents don't happen. They pretend like Fox News isn't a really big, influential uh, media company that has massive problems with bias. And then you also look at Fox News, the way they covered this, mm -hmm. as at least as of last night, they're doing very little, if any, coverage of this incident when it's their own reporters who are right in the middle of the story. And so what I'm wondering is, where's the outrage about that? Yeah, well, maybe when it comes to those those media outlets you're talking about, that's a good point. And maybe they'll break that trend one day. <laughs> I don't know. Um, let's move on to California, where there are some interesting things going on. Governor Newsom. Governor Gavin Newsom says a new law that he's crafting will let private citizens sue anyone who makes, distributes, or sells assault weapons or ghost gun kits here in California. This is really interesting, Robbie, just from a legal standpoint. So Texas has this abortion law that basically puts the power in the hands of citizens to report, you know, when someone's basically getting an abortion so they can basically sue these individuals, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm correct. And now Governor Newsom wants to do something similar in California to sue the manufacturers and the distributors of assault weapons. Right. Yeah. So as background, there was a Texas law that uh, passed earlier this year mm -hmm. that uh, said that any pregnancy in which a heartbeat could detect be detected cannot be aborted. So essentially mm -hmm. it was a six week plus abortion ban, which is pretty early in a pregnancy compared to other laws. And the the unique quirk of this law, some would say an innovation uh, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. it was that it empowered private citizens to enforce the law and explicitly said that public officials can't enforce the law. And when it comes to suing states, it's really hard to sue states. Yeah. There's this concept called qualified immunity, meaning you can't sue a state directly 
for a violation of constitutional provision. But uh, there's a law going all the way back to the early 1900s, 1908, that says you can sue a state official when they're carrying out that law. So backing up for a second, what does that mean? That means that most of the time you just sue that, you know, that treasurer of the county or that, you know, that local bureaucrat who's the one who's fining you for whatever. But in this case, the law says private citizens Mm -hmm. can enforce this against each other, but that state official can't, which means there's nobody to sue, right? Yeah. Which is why the Supreme Court has been having a hard time figuring out what to do with this law. So fast forward to today, months later, Newsom was looking at the right-wing version of this and saying, well, if that's going to be allowed to stand, I'm going to use it for our own uh, advantage, and we're going to use it to enforce uh, a ban on assault weapons, which many people thought isn't, wasn't going to withstand constitutional scrutiny. So he's now saying, let's do this for assault weapons. And actually, this is something I predicted back a couple months ago um, on a different podcast, saying that New York should pass a law like that because you have to kind of show that both political parties are going to use this to their advantage, which I think is the only way to motivate the Supreme Court. I mean, do you really think that Newsom think, I mean, because guns is a very, very different issue than abortion. And this is probably going to be, you know, this is going to be probably struck down for some unconstitutional reason because of the Second Amendment and things like that. So do you really think it's that Newsom is doing this because he really thinks he's going to be able to use that style of law to stop guns being sold in California? Or or is he doing it to force the Supreme Court to actually take action against the Texas law? I think it's smart because either way he gets something, something out, of, out it. of it. Right. First of all, it's he's a politician. So just the, the very fact that we're talking about him taking mm-hmm. on this issue probably helps him politically in a state that overwhelmingly supports gun control mm-hmm. and supports the right to an abortion. Mm-hmm. So like this is a political win for him. But it's a catch-22 for for Republicans. It's, so it's an interesting strategic move because either both laws stand or none, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because it can only be challenged constitutionally if the Supreme Court finds a way to say, we're going to get in the middle of private citizens enforcing this law against each other. And mm-hmm. if they do that, then they have to do it for the Texas law. For the law Texas too. law as well. And then if they don't get in the middle of it, then you have a uh, you know a path to stricter gun control at the state level that other people can replicate. I don't know if it's really a political win for Newsom because on the one hand, yeah, in, in California maybe, but Newsom is a person that a lot of people was looking at in case like Biden doesn't run again or if Kamala Harris just doesn't pan out. Newsom was someone that a lot of Democrats was looking at for the 2024 you know, nomination. And this kind of law, you know, is not something that's going to stand on a national scale like that. Yeah, but you got to win the pennant before you win the series. And for him, he's you know, if he's thinking about national politics, he's thinking about the primary. And yeah, yeah. this was is unquestionably helpful for that. That's a valid point. So let's move on to some extreme weather that's been going on. We don't talk about weather a lot here on The Lost Debate, uh, but there's been some very extreme weather this past week. Uh, Horrific tornadoes that took place last week, uh, mostly in the state of Kentucky. 88 people confirmed dead. I believe over 70 of those were in the state of Kentucky. And it's pretty rare for these types of tornadoes to occur in December. And a lot of people are now starting to point the finger at what role, if any, climate change may have played in this. And then, of course, people politically are already trying to either deny climate change or trying to use it too much to describe what happened in Kentucky. I mean, where I mean, how do we even have a nuanced conversation about climate change anymore? You know, I was surprised in going through our research on this that extreme weather events like tornadoes aren't explicitly like the science isn't conclusive to mm-hmm. say that these events are caused by climate change. I was actually expecting that yeah. to be the case. 
And I part of me sympathizes with people who are uh, alarmed about climate change who want to point to everyday events like these tornadoes and say this was caused by climate change because one of the big political obstacles for for people in that camp, which I would count myself as one of them, is that you want to show that that these are having effects on people right now. Yeah. And so I'm with people in the the overall goal, but I think we have to just be disciplined about saying what does the science say or not say about these particular instances. And right now, I think we should be a little bit cautious based on the the science that I read, at least, to say yeah. that these things are being caused by climate change. Absolutely. Yeah, the science isn't 100% conclusive when it comes to tornadoes. But as someone who lives, who used to live in Alabama, we used to get a lot of tornadoes. Yeah. Uh, warm weather is one of the huge components of you know having a tornado. And this December has been one of the warmest on records, I believe. For, it certainly for, feels like that in New York. Yeah, so I mean, I'm it was not sure it's seven five in yeah, New York yeah, City yeah. this past weekend in December. Yeah, I was running in shorts this weekend. Yeah. But this is the thing is like the 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 challenge for people who are alarmed about climate change is like let's pretend it was eighty degrees today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like one day mm-hmm. uh doesn't make a trend, right? And so I think for a lot of people, like they they argue by, oh, like you know, this one hurricane happened, et cetera. Whereas I think people need to step back and say, all right. Like, is it warmer in general on mm-hmm. record than it was? And of course it is. So I was looking at climate.gov. Mm-hmm. The 10 warmest years on record have occurred since 2005. Oh, wow. uh, and if you look at the data, Earth's temperatures are increasing every decade and it's accelerating. Mm-hmm. And we're at the point right now where if current trends continue, we're, we're going to reach catastrophic levels by the end of the century. Mm-hmm. And the end of the century isn't theoretical. It's not like just your kids, it's yeah. us, yeah. right? Yeah. So for me, this is a thing that's going to become more of a political question is what thing is happening today in front of our face mm-hmm. that you can point to climate change? And it's tricky because any one event is not enough, right? Yeah, and there's always gonna be that debate of, well, maybe the climate is just naturally getting warmer. But at the end of the day, it's all about adaptation. You know, we know that extreme weather is a thing now that we have to deal with. I mean, look at the snowstorms that happened in Texas uh, last winter that may happen again this winter, whether or not their power grid is prepared for that. Yep. Uh, when the first day I moved to New York City in early September, uh, you guys had these incredible floods yep. that were coming through, like that were historic floods. And so this is something that we're just going to have to adapt to. And I think that that's the biggest thing when it comes to this is adapting to this, but also to... And the wildfires, by the way, in California, right? Yes. Like those are, you know, obviously in any given year, they're going to be historic blank anywhere, Mm -hmm, no matter mm -hmm. what's happening. But the sheer number of historic wildfires, Mm -hmm. floods, tornadoes, you start to put it all together and say, all right, this is alarming. Even Mm -hmm. if any one of these could be explained away by a natural trend, something seems to be going wrong here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But there's a workers' rights issue here, too. There was the... Uh, there, there were a lot of people who were killed in these tornadoes, and then there was a controversy over people who are left working and put in harm's way here. Yes, in Kentucky, there was this candlestick factory in which the individuals were told that they left early, they would be fired, even though there were tornado warnings and, and watches in that particular area, and people ended up dying there. And so, absolutely, that's a part of that adaptation I was just talking about. I mean, uh, workers and companies, they're going to have to adapt to this as well and take these threats more serious because, again, it's not... I mean, I think a thing, one of the things that happened in Kentucky was like, oh, it's December. It's not going to get that bad. But now you have to just assume whenever these kinds of storms come, you just have to assume the worst. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Mike Schur, the creator of The Good Place, and, and he was uh, you know influential in The Office. He was a writer for The Office. Mm-hmm. Uh, really funny guy put out a tweet um, or tweeted, put out a tweet. I sound like 100 years old. He tweeted, you know, we're, we're down the street from where this historic triangle shirtwaist factory 
fire happened that killed a bunch of female garment workers, mm-hmm. you know, like a hundred plus years ago. And he tweeted that uh, if that incident happened today, there would be three tweets about it. Republicans would send thoughts and prayers to the families and we'd be like, well, it's super convenient to get our blouses two days with free shipping. So essentially saying- It's pretty dark. We wouldn't respond like, cause what happened in the Triangle Shirtwaist factories, mm-hmm. we responded with alarm and passed all these worker protections. Mm-hmm. And what he's saying is, First of all, most of our shit is made abroad now where horrific anyway, things happen and we yeah. never talk about. Yeah. But even when horrible things are happening today, the question is, why are these people working late mm-hmm. in these factories? Why can't they leave? Because we want our shit tomorrow mm-hmm. and because there are legitimate issues with supply chain that affect everyday people. But a lot of it is us wanting cheap plastic shit at the minute we, we click a button and we aren't having the kind of conversation we need as a society about what kind of burdens it's placing on workers. Absolutely. And we want to blame the boogeyman. We want to blame Jeff Bezos, right? We want to blame these billionaires who definitely bear some of the blame here, but we all bear some of the blame. I think when, when people are working that late to give us shit, that we don't necessarily need as fast as we possibly can get it. Uh, speaking of someone that people have very strong opinions about, <laughs> uh, good old Elon Musk. Who's Time's Person of the Year? The Person of the Year is Elon Musk. Okay. He is reshaping life on Earth and possibly life <laughs> off Earth as well. Time Magazine's Person of the Year. The big question, Ravi. Does he deserve person of the year? Person of the year is usually reserved for world leaders, humanitarians, things like that. But Elon Musk, person of the year, is kind of a big deal. Like they don't normally give it to the individuals like this. So is this is this a big deal? Does he deserve this? Well, I, I would ask somebody who deserves it more. And I've heard people saying things like, you know, Stacey Abrams deserves it or whatever. And I and I love Stacey Abrams. I've had her on multiple podcasts that I've had. Maybe in 2020. But she's not even a current elected yeah. official right yeah. now. She's not even in a government office. And I yeah. know she played a key role in Georgia, but mm-hmm. Georgia was a partisan election electoral victory yeah so the idea that you're a national publication saying that this unelected person who helped organize in one state deserves it over somebody who is revolutionizing space travel electric vehicles battery capacity underground tunnels i mean you could just go on and also it happens to be one of the most influential people on social media just as a thinker i uh, i find he's he seems very clearly somebody who deserves this I, people should ask themselves where was nasa before Elon Musk came along? Where where was the electric car industry before he came along? I mean, he's he's revolutionized industries that we should all be rooting for him to revolutionize. Yeah, you know, when I first saw that he won person of the year, I had a, a gut reaction of the eye roll. Because I'm thinking of the tweets, I'm thinking of the trolling nature that he's sort of kind of taken on on Twitter. But then I actually read the Time article and just did a little bit more research about him. And, and I have to agree. I mean, this is an example of a person who basically shows with enough intellect, enough drive, enough ambition and discipline, you know, he achieves the seemingly impossible. I mean, he sends rockets into space and those rockets come back and are reusable. That is like physically almost incomprehensible based off of what we know about the laws of physics. It's something that people have been trying to do for decades and he actually did it. And he did it in a time frame that is very difficult to even comprehend. Right. He's in, there was an interesting anecdote both in this article that's also in a biography that was written about, about him, I think about like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And when he was first creating SpaceX, he went over to uh, Russia mm-hmm. to try to buy old Soviet rockets. Yeah. And for one reason or another, he decided that those rockets weren't going to work. Mm-hmm. And on the way back from that trip, he was with a couple of people and they were kind of hanging out. They would do what most people do on a long trip. They were kind of hanging out, talking, bullshitting. And they realized that Elon Musk wasn't with them. 
and he was in the front of the plane and then they realized they go they go to check in on him and he's designing his own rocket so that he didn't have to rely upon the Soviet rockets. He was doing it on the flight back. Yeah. And to me, that means this is a very special person. Now, he's special in good and bad ways. Yeah. And I think that that's part of the challenge that people have with him is he tweets a lot and people aren't used to that. Mm -hmm. But what I would ask of people is, would you rather have the Mark Zuckerberg, like corporate speak, apologize, these empty apologies every day, mm -hmm. platitude machine? Mm -hmm. Or would you want somebody who's gonna be a little bit more human, which means that, yeah, occasionally he's gonna be sending poop emojis or whatever, but he's also, so um, a really interesting guy who I it, like, I'll take the bad with the good. And honestly, like, what would we do without people like this in our life innovating on these big issues? Like, we just we need more people like this. Well, yeah, but then there was the criticism coming mostly from the left, I believe, about the fact that he doesn't pay much in taxes. Yeah. And so uh, there was this, you know, of course, there's this, there's this anti-capitalism, anti-billionaire trend going on on the left. And there were a lot of people attacking him, saying he doesn't pay his fair share and everything like that. And, and my whole thing is, you know, if this was 100, 120 years ago, Elon Musk would have been in the same class as Edison. He would have been in the yeah. same class as Rockefeller or Carnegie. We would have considered him a national hero or even an international hero because of the innovations that he's making. But in this day and age, we demonize success because it doesn't align with our ideological lofty dreams of this utopia in which the state can just solve all our problems. Right. And because Elon Musk proves that, hey, maybe the state isn't that good at solving problems. Maybe if you just give that money to someone who can solve those problems, it can get done faster and more efficiently. There's, there's this class of people in this country that just don't like like that because it defies all they know about what they feel the state should be able to provide. Well, I think that's what people, yeah, the progressives have been reacting to is like his explicit libertarianism, which mm -hmm. I think he's become more public about in recent years. And I think in some ways they rightfully point out the fact that he's relied on subsidies at various points in his career, et cetera. Yes, yes. But he's making arguments uh, about like whether he thinks the government is better or worse at doing some of the things that he's doing. And I think if you compare what he does at SpaceX to where NASA was before he yeah. was there, for example, or the, the electric battery market and like even how he's out innovating China in many yeah. ways. You know, for me, the, he, he provides a, a, a really important contrast and a very inconvenient set of facts for people who want to rely on government for some of these issues. But, but where I come at on this is he should pay his fair share of taxes, but he doesn't write the tax code. He doesn't write tax policy. Right. Yeah. And so change the laws so he has to pay his taxes. And it's also a matter of like, where do you spend your time and attention? I'm more worried about like Charles Koch the 17th not paying his taxes <laughs> because that person is inheriting their money. Yeah. They're they're yeah. not inherently useful to society. Here's mm -hmm. a relatively self-made person. Yeah. And he's somebody who has created incredible value for humanity. And so my hot take here is I'd rather him be spending his money than the government be spending his money. Now, yeah. I don't want to create a special rule for him, yeah. but I don't lose sleep over the fact that Elon Musk has more dollars to use to innovate. The guy doesn't even own a house, according to this article. Yeah. So, like, I, I'm rather him keep pouring money into these endeavors than you know sending it to the government to, as we'll talk about, cancel student debt for maybe some people who don't need it. Yeah, we couldn't even send Americans to space from America before Elon Musk after the space shuttle ended. So it's it's pretty significant. But yeah, coming up, we are going to talk a little bit about student loan debt and what we should be doing about it. Pandemic-era moratorium on student loan debt is set to expire on January 31st, and this impending deadline has sparked renewed calls for canceling student debt. We have a moral obligation, an economic obligation, a political obligation to cancel student loan debt in the United States of America. 
We've seen the benefits that this has had that this has had during the forbearance alone. It has given people the breathing room to do what they need to do. And so that we can stop writing these ridiculous articles that young people are killing diamond rings and they're not buying houses and they're killing this industry or that, that we're not having children. It's because we're being crushed by immoral debt. Now, progressives have been pushing three competing proposals to help solve this issue. The first is to cancel $10,000 in debt for all borrowers with federal loans. And this was a plan that was endorsed by Biden during his presidential campaign, but he's since dropped this from his agenda. That's why I proposed and, and the House, Nancy, put it in the plan to immediately provide $10,000 in debt relief as stimulus right now. The second proposal is to cancel up to $50,000 in debt per borrower, which has been advocated by the likes of Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren. I want to see us cancel $50,000 in student loan debt. Uh, Leader Schumer uh, is also with me on this. And the third proposal is to cancel student loan debt entirely, which has been championed by Bernie Sanders. This means making public colleges, universities, and HBCUs tuition-free and debt-free. Now, the price tags on these proposals range from $373 billion to $1.6 trillion for the Bernie proposal. So the question you need to ask yourself is, should Congress pass any of these bills? And if they don't, should Biden take executive action? Now, before I answer those questions, let me get into what you need to know about the student debt crisis. Student debt has more than doubled since 2010, reaching a record $1.75 trillion as of November of this year. And there are currently 42.9 million Americans with federal student loans who owe an average of more than $37,000. More than 90% of all debt is owed to the federal government, which means they have a lot of control over what happens here. And default or delinquency on federal student loans has been rising fast, increasing nearly 50% from 2016 to 2020. And just to survey what people are saying about this, proponents of canceling student debt argue that it would stimulate the economy by freeing up money for borrowers to spend, and it would narrow the racial wealth gap, as black and brown borrowers owe nearly 50% more than white students. Now, critics, on the other hand, argue that canceling student debt would further increase inflation and add to our already spiraling national debt, which has recently surpassed $29 trillion. They also argue that forgiving all debt could bail out rich borrowers that don't need it. You know, I, for one, don't want my tax dollars going to pay off some corporate lawyer's debt, but I would be really interested in helping out somebody who goes into public defense work, for example. But no matter where you fall within this debate, given the razor-thin Democratic majority in Congress, none of these bills will pass anytime soon. The best that supporters of these bills could hope for is executive action. In a 1965 law called the Higher Education Act may give Biden the authority to cancel some debt, but legal scholars disagree about how broad that authority really is. My assumption is that if Biden uses that authority, he'd have to do it in a narrow way, perhaps issuing a means-tested version of his original $10,000 plan. That would still have a huge impact, though, as studies suggest it would completely knock out student debt for up to 15 million people. And paradoxically, those people with $10,000 or fewer in debt are the most likely to default. But as important as it is to remedy past sins and relieve current burdens, many proposals on the issue share a common flaw. They do nothing to address the cause of student debt in the first place. And as background, the U.S. spends more on college than almost any country, almost twice per student of the average developed country. And the segments of higher ed that produce the most debt private, graduate, and professional schools have dramatically increased tuition over the past few decades. 
As Kevin Carey has pointed out in the New York Times, online master's programs are one of the most lucrative and fastest growing sectors in higher ed, returning 50% profit margins to universities and their corporate partners. 50%, that's an absurd profit margin. And they often charge $50,000 or more in tuition. That's $50,000 for taking a Zoom class. No wonder these profit margins are so high. And you have to ask yourself, what would these universities charge when they know that the first $10,000, $50,000 or all of it is free? And a cursory look at many in-person universities reveals they have their own issues with waste. Climbing walls, lazy rivers, opulent dorms, bloated college sports budgets, soaring administrative and research staff. At this point, the hallmark of a high-quality university in this country is exclusivity. And degrees have become essentially luxury goods. And it should be the opposite. The more effective a school is, the more customers they should take on. That is, that's the public good. We want more people accessing great education in this country. And to be clear, we need to absolutely solve this student debt problem, but we need to do it in a way that funnels more students into efficiently run high quality programs that train them to do the jobs we actually need. What would that mean in practice? A few things. It means prioritizing programs that train students to do the jobs that we can't fill right now doctors, nurses, teachers, engineers. And we should incentivize more people entering those fields by making degrees in those fields more affordable or completely free. And we should create an amnesty period for students who already have those degrees and who are dedicated to staying in those fields. And we should also incentivize colleges to keep their costs really low. The average cost of attending a four-year college or university in the U.S. has risen more than twice the rate of inflation from 1985 to 2018. And any university that raises tuition above standard inflation any year should lose its ability to access student loans, which means they would effectively lose customers. And if they're a nonprofit, they should lose their nonprofit status if they don't comply with that rule. And we shouldn't stop there, though. We should provide incentives to programs that actually succeed at getting their students jobs and that whose students are able to pay down their debt over time. You know, there's a lot of data about who's good at keeping costs low, who has low default rates for as a university, and whose people are employable. And that data, we just need to use it more, and we need to use it more effectively. And part of that means we should reward institutions who perform well on those metrics by giving them more federal funds to scale. Now, in many ways, our student debt crisis reminds me of our healthcare crisis. Prices for healthcare have gotten out of control, and medical debt has skyrocketed. But if our only solution was to forgive all outstanding medical bills, that would only further fuel runaway costs and lead to record profit margins for hospital corporations, insurance companies, and pharmaceutical companies. Now, that doesn't mean we have to ignore the people suffering under the burden of debt. Let's give past students relief, but let's also couple it with reforms that actually solve the future higher education crisis that we're all living through right now. This can't just be about the past. Let's also make it about the future. Well, Ravi, as a person who has a shit ton of student loan debt, I found this all to be very interesting. I think it's really interesting when you get into like incentivizing certain degrees over others. Um, you know, do you think we should not cancel student loan debt for people who got like, like worthless degrees? Yeah, <laughs> um, I think I once again, I think like looking back versus looking forward, mm -hmm. I, I, I feel like we should almost use two different standards, right? Mm -hmm. My point is we should couple them together to reform the whole system. And sometimes it's not about the degree. For instance, if you get a degree in sociology, for example, and then go teach in the inner city, mm -hmm. we should forgive that degree. Yeah. Versus if somebody gets a sociology degree and you know just sits at home, that's not necessarily something the government should be incentivizing. Yeah. And like a good example is law degrees. Like I went to law school with a bunch of people who, because of the burden of student debt, 
went to go work at corporate law firms. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think we should be incentivizing that decision by forgiving those loans after those people have gone to law firms. I think we should forgive the loans for people who go become public defenders and prosecutors and other jobs that we just need as society. Maybe not prosecutors, some would argue, but you know, you get what I'm saying? It's like sometimes it's not the degree, but the job that you take with that degree. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I went to film school and uh, most of my student loans are private, so none of this is going to help me. But I knew what I was getting myself into, and I always told the lenders, look, I'll pay this back, you know, when I sell my screenplay. Yeah. And so if they want me to pay it back, maybe they should, you know. I'm sure that was persuasive for them. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, it, they stopped calling for a few months. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, they will start calling in January, I guess. Uh, January, yeah, yeah 31st, <laughs> they, the, the calls will start back. But this is my point, is like, we got massive problems in higher education, and like, I don't want to seem like I don't care. Like, it's like mm -hmm. the medical example. I don't want people to have medical uh, debt either. And yeah. in many ways, I would want to erase that too. Mm -hmm. But I think we've got maybe one shot at doing this systemically. And that's yeah. why I think we got we to gotta tackle the root causes of this problem. Absolutely. Well, good stuff there. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the bad takes from news from this past week. Welcome to a new segment called Bad Takes, where I analyze news media's worst takes from last week's top stories. We don't discriminate here at The Lost Debate, so I'll be sharing bad opinions from both right-wing media and left-wing media, and then I'll give you the nuanced take that we all crave in this partisan media landscape. So first up, Christmas time is upon us, and that means people are taking part in all of the American Christmas traditions, like drinking eggnog, kissing under the mistletoe, and listening to Fox News complain about a war on Christmas. But this year, Fox News commentators were ablaze when they found alleged proof of their fictitious holiday war. On December 8th, the Fox News Christmas tree was set on fire by an arsonist. Now, it turns out, just some mentally ill guy high on K2 Spice set this fire, but that didn't stop Fox News from initially calling it a hate crime. Why is burning Christmas trees not a hate crime, according to the DOJ? Listen, this was a distasteful act of vandalism that we at The Lost Debate certainly don't condone. But did it really warrant wall-to-wall -wall coverage or comparisons to the bombing of Pearl Harbor? They tried to extinguish the darkness at a place called Pearl Harbor. We didn't fold then, and we won't fold now because we've come this far by faith. I mean, 2,000 Americans died at Pearl Harbor, and that plunged us into a global war. On the other hand, this Christmas tree fire resulted in zero deaths. I mean, you can't even count the tree as a casualty. It was artificial. And last time I checked, Fox News wasn't a military base like Pearl Harbor, but it is on the front lines of the culture war, am I right? Fox wasn't alone in its bad take. Progressive commentators and left-leaning tweeters jumped into the fray, mocking this fire. Ugh. Look, bottom line here, acts of vandalism and especially acts of arson are never the recourse of any sane or rational person, and we shouldn't tolerate that. But comparing arson to an act of war is just plain ridiculous. Speaking of other hate crimes that didn't actually happen, the trial of Jesse Smollett brought us many bad takes. The former Empire actor was found guilty on several charges for staging a hate crime on himself. Now, even though this appears to be an open and shut case of someone lying about a hate crime, some people just aren't convinced. A leader from the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter made a statement that was posted on the BLM website that seemed to be in full support of Jesse Smollett, writing, we can never believe police. 
Well, no, actually, this is an incident where we can believe the police because there's overwhelming evidence, including text messages that show Smollett planned this attack. Now, BLM's bad take only spurred yet another bad take from the op-ed section of the New York Post, which claimed that BLM's defense of Smollett exposed why parents are so angry about critical race theory in schools. Wait, hold up. What does CRT have to do with anything? I swear the way BLM reduces every single issue in America to race is the same way some on the right blame all of our problems on CRT. Come on, NY Post. What's with the capping? Look, bottom line here. Smollett has some serious issues and his actions are a reflection on him, not some sign of a national issue we have with people faking hate crimes. As someone who grew up in Alabama, I can tell you hate crimes are very real and they happen to different groups in this country every day. However, Smollett's case is something that will only hold back progress and BLM is helping no one by doubling down on the lies. And finally, and probably our worst take from last week's news. It comes from Ben Shapiro's sister, Abby, who took to Twitter to compare a barely clothed Madonna to a family photo of the former first lady, Nancy Reagan. Her tweet read, this is Madonna at 63. This is Nancy Reagan at 64. Trashy living versus classy living. Which version of yourself do you want to be? Now, this is a terrible take for so many reasons. For one, this is textbook slut shaming. I mean, Madonna has the right to dress however she likes, regardless of her age. Also, it's not even a valid comparison. Madonna has long been known for her risque image. She's a pop star, not the first lady. Personally, I think we all should have ignored Abby's tweet for the conservative pandering that it was. But because it's 2021, the conversation didn't end there. Twitter was quick to point out that the comparisons to Nancy Reagan may not have been the best choice because according to an excerpt from an unapproved biography shared by user Bonky Good at Bonky Good, Nancy Reagan was actually known as the BJ Queen during her time in Hollywood. And by BJ, I don't mean she had the best jokes. So first of all, I really, really didn't need to know that. And second of all, why are we slut shaming Nancy Reagan just to deflect against Abby Shapiro's slut shaming of Madonna? I am just blown away by the fact that people don't realize a woman's sex life is no one else's business and that unless a public figure is a part of some sexual assault allegations, none of this should be a topic of public discussion. So that wraps up our bad takes from last week. And I'd just like to point out that partisanship can really blind you to important things like accuracy and consistency. And that can lead us to focus on unnecessary things like Nancy Reagan's sex life or the value of an artificial Christmas tree. These bad takes aren't doing anyone any favors. So let's get better at calling them out when we see them. Ravi, of all of the bad takes we just reviewed, which do you think was the worst? Well, I, I think it depends on like what our metric here is. I was going to go with the Pearl Harbor stuff just because yeah. it's so dumb. It's extreme and dumb. But I, I'm going to go with the Nancy Reagan stuff because of the creativity involved in the bad take. Because I think like the, the Pearl Harbor stuff, it's like a Holocaust comparison, right? Yeah, like it's, it's just it's ridiculous. Anybody can do that. Whereas I think it, it it really takes some skill to to do the Nancy Reagan stuff like it yeah I know Nancy Reagan thought. did have skill apparently some real thought. but yeah <laughs> but 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 yeah it's like like who scoured yeah. the internet to find this random biography it's just like we're going so far and it was it was just it was just I didn't need to know that yeah. I really didn't need to know that about the former first lady yeah I uh, I it really kudos, blows you away it's kudos really, to everybody involved uh, yeah 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 absolutely well. 
Robbie, great episode. That was our show. We thank you all for watching. Make sure to subscribe to YouTube for more interesting things like the things we talked about today. Also, go listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.